911, what's your emergency? There's a health crisis in America today, one you probably haven't heard of. I'm not talking about a pandemic or heart disease or diabetes, not even cancer. It's hospitals closing in this country on an all too regular basis, leaving communities without health care, without jobs, oftentimes without hope. The question is why? Hospitals have long been a place of confidence and trust where babies are born, life-threatening diseases are treated, and lives are saved in emergencies. But what happens when hospitals across America close their doors forever? Every one of these cities we've gone to, every community that's lost a hospital, they have the same dream of a hospital coming back. This is crazy. To turn these buildings back into places of healthcare and a focus for the community, but honestly, You look at the condition of some of these buildings, they've been destroyed, the deterioration is. It's just extensive, it's too much. And at some point, you just find that that dream just seems to be out of reach. It's not an easy thing for a community to lose their hospital. We had a great heart program, and now it's gone. I had my daughter here. I had all my surgeries here until it closed. If this hospital hadn't been right here, I would be gone. He died because they closed the hospital. Yes. So they can, they can say they care all they want to, but they don't care. I was born here, I was married here, in the blink of an eye, it was gone. Almost 200 hospitals in America have closed in just the last few years. Big towns and small, places like Maslin, Ohio, Kennett, Missouri, Ducktown, Tennessee. And it's not just the devastation of lost health care and opportunities to treat people from the emergency room to the oncology department. It's the loss of jobs. It's the loss of identity for a community. It's happening all over America, and it's accelerating. It is a true crisis. I'm Steve Gruber. For the next 90 minutes, we're going to take a deep dive into this crisis of closing hospitals in America. Flatline. I can't wrap my head around it in any way that makes it acceptable that our government programs would under-reimburse a facility to a degree that it puts them out of business. In the past, doctors were the leaders 
of a hospital. Now, the Quality Assurance Department is the leader. If you're looking to retire, when you go to a place you want good health care, you know the services. And also, it was the largest employer in the county. The sooner you can get um, adequate treatment for a tra serious traumatic event, uh, the better off you're going to be. All the good providers, the surgeons and so on, left. I'm sorry, they don't even pay a nurse's half or quarter of her salary in the ER. That was another bad blow, losing all those jobs. You know, lives are lost when people have to travel farther to get to health care. I don't know how we're going to solve it other than come up with a different modality that can get people to adequate treatment when they're traumatized. They overcomplicated the situation and to the detriment of small hospitals. Their motto is we care, they don't care. Based on our analysis uh, through the Chartist Center for Rural Health, we have uh, 453 hospitals that are vulnerable to closure. Out of that 453, 216 are highly vulnerable for closure, meaning that uh, those are in very precarious uh, situations financially, and once they've exhausted their uh, financing, uh, they could close at any time. It first started in 1929 and lasted for a decade, the Great Depression, and it was the first time healthcare in America was truly in crisis. Many Americans were unable to afford the care they desperately needed. Healthcare coverage was basically a luxury and practically non-existent. Some people had to live in shacks, couldn't even afford to buy food, let alone pay for a doctor's visit. And because of that, many hospitals across this country were thrown into financial ruin and forced to close. America has the best health care in the world, if you can afford it and if you can find it. But with hospitals breaking down and closing their doors, we're facing a crisis like we haven't seen in this country for health care since the Great Depression. It means access for millions of Americans could disappear. Paul Seeger began his professional career as a Russian analyst for the NSA. Then he changed careers and began working in healthcare, specifically in insurance, to understand how the numbers worked. But what he found out is usually, they don't. What's PCS Advisors? What do you do? We're a healthcare consulting firm, which could mean anything, so I'll explain it. We go in and show employers where the waste is in the transactions in their health plan. And we can show, as an example, a recent client, a hospital, a rural hospital actually, $10 million spin on their health plan became seven, and their employees have better coverage and they have more stability into the future. And this was actually a hospital's yeah. coverage? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the Couldn't a hospital figure out the, uh, how to get the money right? <laughs> they hire us too because they know how crazy the business is. The average hospital has more than 150 prices for every procedure they perform. It's a huge mess, uh, especially if you're a smaller facility. You're getting murdered in negotiations with insurers around your reimbursements and it, it actually ties into this conversation really well because you'll watch most hospitals in bigger areas survive on commercial payers, non-government programs that are you know, paying, and these folks are getting murdered. Oftentimes, what commercial insurance try to do as much as possible is shift the risk to the provider for the care uh, that's being uh, provided to the patient and so you'll see these in increasing number of high deductible plans 
Um, so a patient uh, making minimum wage, uh, uh, not a very, not don't have a lot of assets or resources, coming in for a procedure, and let's say it's uh, six, seven thousand uh, dollars. There's no way that they're going to be able to pull that out of their pocket for the payment of for that service. hundred and fifty different pricing models for one yep. procedure. How can that possibly, I mean, if you go buy a hamburger, a hamburger costs what it costs, right? right? You've got what it took to build it, what it took to deliver it, what it took to package it, here it is. How can you have a hundred and fifty different prices for one thing? Right, and you don't get to know which price your plan is paying. Uh, so if you go in, and this it's, it's so crazy, you can go in and say, I'm gonna pay cash, you're gonna get an 80 to 85 percent discount likely off of what your insurance plan would pay. And so what happens is these different insurance plans go into these hospitals and say, okay, about every two years, they'll go in and negotiate reimbursements for every single little billable item. And their goal, But of it's course, not just the insurance money. agencies. It's the government doing the same That's thing. That's right. They're all benchmarking it off of the government. Yeah. Medicare uh, came out many years back and said, okay, this is what we're going to pay for X. And now everybody benchmarks off of that. So it creates a situation where they're fighting each, every, each and every two years, especially if you're smaller. Right. You're fighting to get as high as you can above Medicare in right. terms of your multiple. Just to survive. To survive. Yeah, to survive. The, the financial certainty is the path we're on for a lot of hospitals, as we've already seen, 200 hospitals over the last few years yeah. have gone out of business, bankrupt in America. Our first stop is in Maslin, Ohio, in Northeast Ohio, in Stark County. Maslin for decades was winning in every corner of its city. It was even nicknamed the City of Champions. But as we all know, even the best winning streaks come to an end. And in 2018, Maslin got a knockout punch. I'm here to talk with some of the people who were part of the hospital for decades. A hospital that is now closed and breaking their hearts. And you've been here your whole life. Born and raised, uh, went away to college, went away to the Navy, and came back. I was born here. I was married here. My kids were born here. I was employed here for 45 years. I was hired in as a part-time storekeeper in the supply department, and I left as um, the chief operating officer. Not only was I born and raised here, my mother volunteered here, and they called them candy stripers. So I would walk up from grade school, which is down the block, come here, wait for her after her volunteer. My dad then would swing by from where he worked and pick both of us up. I knew this hospital like the back of my hand, the old part, the new part, this wing. And so it's, it is the fabric of the community. Maslin has a population of just over 30,000. The town was formed back in 1812 and got its name from a French bishop. Jean-Baptiste Massillon. It became a major port town on the Lake Erie Ohio River Canal and grew from there. The C.M. Russell and Company would be founded here in 1848 and would become one of the largest producers of industrial and agricultural equipment all across America. 
the year 1868 would see the Maslin Iron Bridge Company founded. Some of those bridges are still standing and in use today. Steelmaking started to take off in the area by the turn of the century. And the steelworkers wanted health care, so they helped to fund the first community hospital in 1904. By 1930, Maslin would have the third biggest steel company in the world, Republic Steel. And they employed nearly 50% of the city. Lincoln Highway, the United States' first coast-to-coast -coast highway, would go right through downtown Maslin until 1971, when US 30 was built. And of course, this humble town wouldn't be Maslin at all without its football. The town's motto, after all, is City of Champions. Their high school football team, the second winningest in American history, 23 professional football players, three NFL coaches, and another 14 All-American athletes have graduated from this high school. Unfortunately, this amazing football program may be the only thing the locals can have pride in. By the early 2000s, every industry that built Maslin into the town that it was, as part of the arsenal of democracy, they closed their doors or moved away. And in 2018, the hospital built by those hardworking local steel workers, the industry that has now died, closed its doors as well. We're in a crisis here, aren't we? Without question, we're at a crisis point. And people don't realize that when you say subsidy in this business, they think I'm about to talk about the government, and it's actually the other way around. The government has been relying on commercial payers to subsidize their program programs, you know, Medicare, Medicaid sure. primarily, right? So you have, Rand just did a study, and they looked at the data from 4,000 out of the 6,000 or so hospitals that we have, and they came back and said, commercial payers pay 224% of what Medicare pays when their people show up at a hospital and get a procedure. Same procedure, same facility. I don't even think that tells the story very well. We do our own analysis, and we might see three and a half, six, seven, eight, nine, 10x differences. 10 times the cost. Yes. And so the commercial payers are the profit margin. They are the lifeblood of these hospitals that do well. And when you say commercial payer, who is that? So that's someone that's getting their insurance at work, primarily. There are some, also some individual They've got a major so insurance on. carrier. Mm -hmm. They go in, they get a CT scan, they have whatever done. Their insurance company foots the bill for everybody. That's right. Almost 200 hospitals in America have closed, many in rural, forgotten places, places off the beaten track, but also in places like Massillon, Ohio, where I am right now. This city lost two hospitals in just a few years. This one closed in February of 2018, and trust me, the devastation to this community is just as bad as it is everywhere else. I've been a rural hospital administrator for over 20 years before I took this position, so the importance of these facilities in rural areas I was never more gratified when I'd walk around and the community members, friends and family that I knew would refer to, um, how's our hospital doing? It was really, uh, we had a, had a great medical staff, a terrific board, um, and when you've got those three components together, you can be really successful. And that's been what I've tried to do here at the national level is trying to see what we can do to replicate um, good boards, good medical staffs, uh, good workforce, and good, good leadership to make sure that every community in the United States uh, that provides all the food, fuel, and fiber for our country 
um, gets the health care that they deserve and that they need and, and should have a right to expect. What did it mean when it closed? Tragic. Misery. It, it's a death in the community. And the people in the 40s and 50s that worked at Republic Steel, Mass and Steel Casting, Tyson Roller Bearings, those guys worked their buns off. But you know what they did? They took $2 out of their paycheck every week to build the Republic Wing here, the Mass and Steel Castings Wing. I remember my father had a family business here, and he would collect $1 or $2. And this is when, you know, your weekly paycheck was $70. So that meant a lot. And those individuals who contributed to build their community hospital wanted it so their families had an emergency room, that they could come here when they were sick, and then it, in the event of death, they could die in dignity. And so they busted their buttons from the 40s, 50s, and 60s until the steel mills closed, and to give money so they could build the various wings of this hospital. The original Maslin Hospital opened more than a century ago, and the local workers helped fund parts of the hospital for themselves and their families. The Maslin City Hospital founded in 1904 by James and Amelia Pocock. They owned a local coal mining operation, and in 1910 donated this land and the hospital to the city. The same year, Maslin City Hospital started its School of Nursing. That program lasted for more than seven decades before ending in 1986. In 1978, the Maslin City Hospital changed its name to Maslin Community Hospital. And two decades later, the hospital was sold to Akron General Health Systems. And Eddie Elam had something to say about that too. In 1910, the Polcock family, the famous Polcock deed stated, I'm giving this to the city, but it has to be used exclusively for hospital and medical care. They defeated that deed. They applied to the court, and the Attorney General's office is a necessary party because they're representing the charitable interest. Sure. And the mayor and his administration at the time took the money from this for-profit entity and put it in a foundation thinking that would be the medical care for this community. The hospital is worth probably at that time $120 million. They sold it to this for-profit entity for about eight or 10. And in that, there was already $4 million in cash. So you got the whole thing for under $8 million. And you can see, and th this is the building you're talking about. Well, we've seen consolidation, however you want to define that, um, happening for the last uh, 10, 20, 25 years. They're looking for partners to be able to help them solve some of the intractable problems they've been having for years. This can be a great setup for some facilities. Others, uh, it can be a problem, as you said, because once you've sold your assets, you're only gonna do that once. Um, after you've let them go to outside interests, uh, yes, it can be that they can control the delivery of health care. And I always say that all health care is local. 
you can't farm it out to a community 50, 100, 200 miles away and have it be a satisfactory experience for both the consumer, uh, the patient, and the provider. It's the public officials and the government officials that let that happen. Those individuals that let these big hospital corporations come in and suck the lifeblood out of your community and all the money in the capital here and took it to Tennessee or wherever they took it and left us a shell here. In a place that used to be alive, vibrant with people, nurses' stations sit empty. Patient rooms vacated. A place that was alive with the energy and doctors and nurses and patients and families. Some with children being delivered. Some saying goodbye to loved ones. All empty now. Closed, but why? Why is it happening so often in America? Why are so many hospitals going closed? The answers are complex, I can tell you that. And there's not just one. I leave Maslin and drive 50 minutes northeast to Chippewa Lake, Ohio, where I meet with Elizabeth Pruitt. Elizabeth started working at Maslin Community Hospital in 1982 and worked there for 35 years. I was hired in as a part-time storekeeper in the supply department, and I left as um, the chief operating officer. And temporary CEO? Temper interim CEO. In America today, there are dozens of hospitals that have gone out of business or closed their doors for one reason or another in the last five years. Places like Tennessee and Texas have lost more than 25 hospitals each. And these can range in size from 25 beds to more than 100, so various sized hospitals, and for different reasons, but most of it financially driven. When you look at what happened to Maslin Community Hospital, what, what do you think? What went wrong? Healthcare in the United States is a very complex situation, and as you mentioned, financial um, considerations are usually at the root of a lot of um, failures. Would that it be that the government could be as that effective in terms of uh, trying to be uh, intentional around that end. We're dealing with just decades of benign neglect, of understanding that rural providers are different and that they have a different requirement for the services that are being provided by those facilities. And uh, we like to say that policy needs to be rural-proofed, meaning that 
you, you proof all policy under a lens of whether it's what its impact is going to be on a rural provider. The deeper I dig, the more questions I ask. I keep coming up with some similar answers. I'm seeing a pattern develop, and the pattern is this. In the 80s and 90s, reimbursements for hospitals or ambulance services or medical services in general were pretty straightforward. You'd turn in your receipts, the government would send the money back, it would happen in a timely fashion, but it has gotten so complicated, so difficult, hospitals and ambulance services have entire wings now, entire departments, just trying to get back the money from the government, which, by the way, gets smaller and smaller and smaller every year. To be honest, I think it's the payer system and the fact that reimbursement is very, very complex and it takes a long time to be reimbursed for the services that we provide in a hospital. And so as a result, we just couldn't sustain our financial base for our long-term situation. And to be clear, you're talking about reimbursement from the federal government. I am. If you show up at a hospital and you have Medicare or Medicaid or you're uninsured, uh, you're going to get that hospital, and, and which to absolutely impacts these rural hospitals and urban hospitals in poorer areas the, the most. Right. You've got someone showing up and they need a procedure. They're going to collect, uh, they're going to lose money. Now it's just a question of how much are they going to lose on that procedure. They might need 140% of what they collected. 120 might be a good situation, could be higher. And so if they don't have commercial payers showing up, coming through those doors where they can bill them 224%, 350%, 700%. Some states you'll see it at 1,200% of Medicare. To make up the difference. They have so to they're, they're making up the difference, the failure of the government people, if you will, the ones that are, because many of these hospitals are mandated, required to service yeah. people, right? And so then you make it up on the backs of the working people in America that are yeah. paying exactly. their insurance rates, and then the insurance rates go up, and the working people in America say, the insurance rates are going up. Right. Reimbursement is complicated. In order to get federal reimbursement today, I think the rules still in place, you have to be fully COVID compliant, which means your entire staff has to be COVID vaccinated. You have that coupled with the fact that um, the diagnostics, which is basically the financial lifeblood of many hospitals, right? Being right. mammograms, colonoscopies, yeah. that sort of thing, those things were cut off for months, years during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. How much damage do you think that did financially to these smaller hospitals? Oh, I think it was devastating. I can see both sides of that equation and how it was difficult for the hospital administration and also for the employees. It was stressful. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, peaked interest around those mandates and how that did, in some cases, definitely hurt uh, the workforce during a very, very difficult time for um, hospitals treating a lot of COVID patients. Uh, it was kind of ironic in some ways. Well, the hospital administration, basically, they're in a position where if you don't take federal money, you're bankrupt. Exactly. If too many of your employees leave and you can't do the procedures, you're yeah. bankrupt. It's a no-win situation. So if you're providing diagnostics in a hospital, but you have two mammography techs and one of them leaves, you cannot sustain mammography services any longer because 
you know, you've got one person can't carry it 24-7, 365 days out of the year. And there are just not that many people now since COVID that are interested in um, working in the healthcare system. It's considered to be a highly risky occupation, you know, like other first responders. Uh, staffing in uh, EMS is uh, going way backwards and it's been an ongoing problem for the last five years. We've set the alarms off at schools, with the state, with the state and local people. When you say you set the alarms off, you said, we've got a problem. When we first bought this business, I had 200 applications, half medics, half EMTs. I'm going to tell you right now, if I have one or two in the queue, there's not enough people doing this, and it's been an ongoing problem. Now it's crisis level. So now what you're saying is looking forward, not a particularly rosy picture because you don't have the people being trained in the proper areas of medical care that you need to fully staff these hospitals. And without the staff, you can't do the tests which feed the finances. So that's why these hospitals close their doors. In some cases, yes. Meet Patrick Henry. He started working here when he was 16 years old back in 1979. And over the years, he became head of maintenance. That was until the hospital closed in 2018. But in 2020, the city hired him again to take care of the building. He was born in this hospital. His kids were born in this hospital. He was also married here. Unfortunately, that's more of a painful memory now as it is to hundreds of others throughout this town. First of all, tell me about the day that Affinity said that they were gonna shut down. What went through your mind? When we found out they was gonna shut down, we were sitting in the maintenance shop and over the overhead PA, they announced all the department directors to go to administration to the boardroom. And a few weeks before that, we had uh, university hospitals was down here looking, they were, we were gonna merge with them and that's, we thought for sure, we're down there in the maintenance shop and we're all laughing and it's gonna be great when they come in and blah, blah, blah. And boss said, just stay right here until I get back and I'll let you know what's going on. Well, she came back, you could tell she'd been crying, and she just never said nothing, just walked around and handed papers to everybody. Started reading, and it was just a kick in the gut. I mean, it was unbelievable. You had to read it over. We had no, no idea we was even thinking of closing, only merging. It was a really sad day here. Everywhere you went, people were crying and in the hallways and, you know, just, it was, it was bad. What did it do to this community when the doors closed? We was a big family. Everybody cared, you know, I mean, everybody cared about one another and it was like losing part of your family because there was people here you talked to every day and you just looked forward to coming to work. It wasn't like, oh, geez, I got to go to work. And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, it was gone. People were lost for a while, just totally lost mentally. And you'd see them at the grocery store, see them here, there, and then you end up standing there for a half hour, you know, just reminiscing. And we was a very tight group of people here. It, it was, uh, 
very odd spot in life in general. If you have a car wreck or a heart attack today, what happens? What if happens if you're 20 minutes west of town? Because the other hospitals to the east, right? The Canton Hospital. The Canton Hospital. I mean, if, you have, if you have a heart attack or a car wreck, what happens? Well, you got to get hauled over there. <laughs> I mean, that's it's it's a long way. It's uh, I think the average is a 17-minute drive from this facility. That's with the traffic and everything going down Tusk to get to either one. And yeah, it's uh, very much a matter of life and death for a lot of people, a lot of people. In a catastrophic uh, trauma accident where uh, major blood vessels or the heart is, is uh, damaged, again, immediate response, minutes uh, count, and restoring the blood flow to the brain and the major organs of the body are very important. The longer that's delayed, the lower the chances of survival. It's tragic to look at it now because it was always so clean and shiny and bustling with people and a lot of trays going out, phones ringing. Fifty-seven years. So you were in charge of food services. Well, I guess I really felt blessed because I had opportunity here that I could start in the dishwasher. And I was the, fortunate that the dietitian in charge kept letting me try each position. And finally, I got to go to uh, Michigan State for a food service course so I could become a food service supervisor. And through me being the food service supervisor, at that time, we had a national organization that was called HIFS at the time, now it's Dietary Managers. And I was able to serve as president two years and travel all over the United States. And it all came from opportunities right here at the hospital. Your whole career? My whole life almost, really. You see, hospitals aren't just for emergencies. They support the babies and their families during those first moments of life. They provide the compassionate care to people at the end of their lives. And they're there for all the checkups, the screenings, the treatments, to take care of future health problems too. One of the most disappointing, in fact, heartbreaking factors is the fact these hospitals close despite the quality of care. In fact, it's often not taken into consideration. Here in Massillon, the cardiac unit was considered one of the premier units in the country. And yet, they pulled the plug anyway. People that are, have a heart attack or a stroke or in a car accident, it puts the emergency room a lot farther away. That's gotta, that's gotta take people's lives. I guess I really think a lot about that because I do have a heart condition and I live two blocks from the hospital and if I have any sudden feelings or anything like that, I've got to go a long way. And it's very scary because I was so used to being able to come here where we had a great heart program and now it's gone. The belief was if we could get treatment to somebody that was, had received trauma within an hour, the morbidity and mortality would go down. And that's true and false, but the big ones are for hemodynamically unstable people, so somebody has a heart attack and cardiac arrest, 
The sooner somebody can get to them, the higher their chances of survival. If that's delayed 30, 40 minutes, the odds of surviving goes way down. It's one of the things that ties a community together, a hospital. You were born here. People came here to, some of them to die in dignity. Right. But that's what went on here, isn't it? Correct. I've had family of my own in both ways. I've had some that come in here and had open heart surgery and are doing excellent today. And I've had other older family that we were happy that we could bring them this close to their homes so they could rest in peace. When this hospital closed, I heard it described earlier today as a death in the community, like the life was taken out of the community when the hospital closed. What would you say about that? I'd say that was a very true statement because we had heard rumors, but it was just all of a sudden that we were given a call that not to come back, especially as a volunteer. And it was really hard to understand and to believe. It was just like a, a, you have a relative or a good friend that has a sudden death and you can't believe they're gone. That's how it felt about the hospital. It's the people, the places, the faces. They're just all forgotten. After more than 100 years. Why is it the hospitals in the rural areas are the ones closing their doors so fast? The answers can be complicated, but sometimes it seems that all the answers come back to a couple of things. Government, insurance, and healthcare providers. 20 years ago, 67% of us or so got our coverage at work. Now we've crossed, I think, a critical number. In the last year, we went because of extra subsidies for Medicaid and they're not auditing the roles of who's on Medicaid and so on. 49% of us get our coverage at work now. Less than half of Americans are commercial payers. And it used to be two out of three of us. So the government could, rely, could underpay facilities less than it costs us to, to, to provide care they could reimburse facilities, knowing that those hospitals would then just turn around and, and overcharge commercial payers. Can't do that business. anymore because more than half of the That's people right. going to hospitals now, their coverage comes from the government. Exactly. Already? Yes. More than half. 51 are now getting it from the government. And it's a, it's a vicious cycle, a worsening, you know, it's a perfect storm because you have small employers that are getting priced out of it. Right. Or they're looking at it and saying, because the increases in premium to account for the fact that they're overcharging a smaller pool, they have to keep raising the rates on those folks, uh, the cost of those procedures. So then these employers are looking at it and saying, for one of two reasons, I'm not going to offer coverage I can't anymore. do it. Healthcare prices that are out of control because exactly. more than half of Americans are now on some sort of a government pay plan. Exactly. And so then employers also look at it and say, if I spend my money that I could just pay them in compensation on a health plan, what I can buy for them has a $9,100 out-of-pocket max. It would, they can't afford that. But if I just cancel my plan, let them go to the exchange and get a subsidy there, they won't have that kind of out-of-pocket risk. So you can see how at that small level that decision makes sense at the local level. But it's crushing the system. Well, it's crushing the system and we're seeing these hospitals go out of business all over the country. And based on what you've told me here, we're going to see a lot more hospitals and healthcare facilities and small emergency rooms and ready cares mm -hmm. close their doors. Mm -hmm. yeah. can't, can't, they're not financially viable anymore. If your customer base is primarily Medicare, Medicaid and uninsured, 
you're not making money, you're losing money. So now it's just a question of how much cash do you have, how long can you burn? What's your run rate on your cash? You're gonna go out of business and you don't have commercial payers to make up the gap. Because they're smaller and smaller every day. Every day. It is a crisis. I am talking to administrators on a daily and weekly basis around the country and I have not seen the level of concern like I do now. I believe that we do need to have some systemic changes that, are, uh, that, that, that will help with this situation. And we need some innovation that's gonna spin us out of this orbit that we're in right now. I can tell you that not, more and more people are becoming less interested in just doing the same things that we've been doing for the last 10, 20 years. Uh, because it's not getting better. So we need to look for some innovation and in trying to help get us through some of these uh, difficult times that hospitals are experiencing right now. Kennett, Missouri, a town located in Dunklin County in the boot heel of the state. A home for those who enjoy a lack of clutter and a quieter life. At a time, the area was mostly swampy and flooded land but it was inhabited by settlers in the 1840s regardless. Not only was it flattened by Civil War skirmishes, but the town wouldn't truly rebuild until the first railroads arrived three decades later. Between 1913 and 1928, the beginnings of the Little River Drainage District project would drain water from two million acres of land in southeast Missouri through the use of levees and dams. This turned previously uninhabitable land into a lush landscape for farmers to prosper. Today, Kennett and the surrounding Duncan County is the state's number one producer of cotton and produces several other important cash crops too. The obvious fact is that farmers grow the food and the products that every community needs to survive. The engineers that maintain the dams and levees that make these farms and other important infrastructures such as hospitals possible provide an invaluable service allowing people to maintain their quality of life. Hospitals themselves provide this, but in 2018, Kennett's own hospital shut down too. In a community of 10,000, not only does the loss of hundreds of jobs hit hard, but people now have to travel upwards of 40 minutes or more to seek the health care that was nearby. And that can be the difference between life or death for those facing emergencies. The challenges facing these communities when hospitals close, whether it's Maslin, Ohio, or Kennett, Missouri, or Ducktown, Tennessee, or the dozens and dozens of others across this country that have closed in the last few years, the challenges when the hospital closes are the same. How do you replace the healthcare for the community? How do you replace all the jobs that have been lost? And maybe more importantly than any of that, is how do you prevent a place like this from filling up faster than it should. This is Twin Rivers Regional Medical Center in Kennett, Missouri. It had 116 beds and closed in 2018. And when I arrived in town, I did not expect to see what I found.
a place that once saved lives and delivered babies and treated cancer, looked like it had been bombed out in a war zone. This, of course, was just the outside of the building. One person who experienced the loss of life, she says, because of the Kennett Hospital closing, is lifelong resident, Cindy Anderson. Tell me about this hospital, what it means to you, what it meant to you through, well, pretty much your entire adult life. Yeah, I started working here in 1978. And really, I think if you talk to any other of the employees, we were just like a big family. And I think that's why you would, you would see a lot of people from outside that would come in and rather than go to the bigger places, they would rather come here because everybody knew them. I had my daughter here. I had all my surgeries here until it closed. My daughter is an RN. She worked here in OB. My sister uh, worked in pharmacy for longer than I. She was here a year before I was. So uh, I had a sister-in-law that worked in the business office and also a niece that worked in the business office and a niece that worked in the lab as a phlebotomist. you see it now when you drive by and you see the windows are broken and the parking lot's empty and it's filled with water, what do you think? It makes me mad because this community needs this hospital. It needed it when they said that, that they were going to sell it. I don't understand why there was not some conclusion they could have come to. Everybody said that they were selling us because they thought that the people from Kennett would come to Popper Bluff to that sister hospital to be treated, that's not what's happening. People don't want to go up there. They're mad, they're hurt, that they took away the, the livelihood and the medical accessibility for people here in this town. It's just caused all kinds of problems, not just with jobs, but with people's lives, their actual, whether they live or die. And that's for all of them, from, from newborns on up. In 2003, Tenant Healthcare Corporation, which is one of the largest healthcare corporations, sold five hospitals to Health Management Associates. Seven Rivers Community Hospital in Crystal River, Florida. Heart and Regional Medical Center in Tullahoma, Tennessee. University Medical Center in Lebanon, Tennessee. Three Rivers Healthcare, a two-campus hospital in Poplar Bluff, Missouri and Twin Rivers Regional Medical Center in Kennett, Missouri. Twin Rivers so far is the only hospital that's been closed permanently. I mean, I think we're gonna get to a place where it becomes such a crisis, we have to have the conversation, but it won't happen until, until then. I think as Americans, we're good at solving problems once we've tried everything else you know, to, to avoid it. But we've gotta pay, I, I think you look at the provide, Medicare and Medicaid, you're not gonna save rural hospitals if they don't pay what it costs to actually treat people. If people knew that that was the case, I think they would be upset about it. I mean, you, how can you expect, it, how can it, it just, I can't wrap my head around it in any way that makes it acceptable that our government programs would under reimburse a facility to a degree that it puts them out of business. And require them to do it. Right. And then you have to do this at a loss. <laughs> yes. And you have to do it forever. Until you, until you basically cry uncle and go out of business.
You've been a police officer in Kennett, Missouri for how long? About seven years. Uh, during that time, 2018, the hospital here closed. Mm -hmm. Big part of the community. What's so, that do to the community? Uh, well, it, it has crippled the community. Um, obviously, a hospital is a big part of any um, city, town, establishment. We need it to kind of keep us afloat because obviously businesses won't come to this town without a hospital. So it, it, it hurt in a, every, on every level, on every level of life for an economy to, to be able to, to flourish. So I was born in there and actually my first daughter was one of the last children born in there in 2018, so. So really it's the center of your, center of your world it was, it in was. many ways. Yes, sir. As a police officer, you would go there with people from traffic accidents or a heart attack. Yes, sir. So now what do you do? It's horrible because obviously we only have a Haytow or Piggott Hospital, which both are like 20, 30 minutes away. Um, so you're talking about something that's time sensitive. We do the best we can with our, our medical one. They get them on board and they try to keep them or sustain them until we get them to the hospital. But uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we have to go through that, but that's right now what we got. And so we do the best we can with what we got. What's happened to crime since the hospital closed? Crime has been bad for probably, since I've been here, the last four or five years has gotten worse. Um, um, it, it just keeps escalating and getting further off and, and it's almost, on a, we can't really manage it. It's what we, you know, as much as we try, we don't have, we don't have the manpower to be able to, to combat what goes on out here in these streets. As far as the hospital itself though, it went from a place where you were born, mm -hmm your oldest daughter was born, to a place where you've got homeless people, squatters, meth heads, junkies, criminals. I mean, it's become a, a place where crime has taken over, really, from what it looks like from the outside. Yes, sir, it is. Um, I don't even know who owns that building anymore. Uh, when they left it, they, they got all the things that they wanted out of it, and, and a lot of the things that they kept in there, like copper wire, that's what meth heads want. They can, they can, they can sell that. So, like, it was just like free money to them, so a chance to get high, and not only get high, but a, a place to go in and, and squat and you know and sleep for the night, start a little fire, um, which is also dangerous. Another another problem we were dealing with with, with squatters, um, and staying there that night. And it's such a big building that the chances that unless we're going in there every day checking it out, you'll never catch them. Uh, wanted people, people who have felony warrants that you know we need to get picked up because they're dangerous. Um, people who are under the influence of drugs and obviously people who are stealing the copper wire and taking it and selling it. So that building alone, it's being, that, that is still standing is the problem, that we still have it because it's a danger to not just the people going in, but the community around. Another big problem is when these hospitals are closed down. They're often in places that don't have much resources, they don't have the ability to do much with the buildings, so the buildings themselves become a magnet for all sorts of people. Look at this building, for example, all of the copper pipes have been stripped out. You can see it, this whole place has been gutted because the doors are open, the windows are broken. You can see, obviously, people have been here squatting, and that's what the police tell us. 
there's a problem because in these places, because the doors are open, it's a shelter, so they come in, the homeless people, the people that look for a place to just get out of the weather, uh, methamphetamines and drugs, addicts are here. Plus, they often find convicted felons, for example. And that's what I'm talking about right there. That's why the police are often nervous coming into these buildings, these hospitals, once the center of the community are now a mecca for crime, a magnet for all the bad elements, and it creates real problems. There's talk of a hospital coming back. Kennett's a sinking ship. The key to saving this town might be a hospital back here. At one point, every place is a sinking ship, and it, and it takes smart people, individuals who are uh, selfless in their acts to, to get it back on board. So um, we're not going to stop trying because we see the ship going down. We're going to try to find a way to rebuild it, but the hospital would be something that would give us hope in a lot of times. In things like this, you need hope, you need faith to keep going. So if we could get that back, that would give people, the community, some type of hope to say, okay, let's let's push forward and try to make it right. More so, jobs in yeah, the city. Yeah, that would bring, obviously, that would bring a lot more jobs. And then a lot of these houses you see vacant, a lot of these businesses you see shutting down, they would come back. But we, we just need that little that little hope, that little light to say, okay, we're not in the dark any longer. Let's, let's move forward. And hopefully that happens soon. When you close the biggest employer in your town, like a hospital, other businesses soon close their doors as well. It's always an impact of a community our size, having two hospitals and uh, all of a sudden having none. Well, they used to eat lunch here. The doctors eat lunch here. We had a lot of to-go to -go business, employees, nurses, whatever. So yeah, it was, it was, it's quite an impact. All the electricians, all the plumbers, contractors, they all lost a huge customer. There's a 100-year-old bakery in Maslin that probably lost half of their business when the hospital closed. How do we get more jobs when we can't provide health care for them? Yeah, we definitely felt it for a few years, the ripple effect, you know, losing the store losing everything, things really dried up for a while. I mean, people spend money where they work, basically 125 employees. So we, our tax revenue in the city, we've seen, you know, the revenues drop, and, and that's a lot of it. When hospitals close, hundreds of jobs go away, and that's devastating, but that's just step one. You see, because restaurants close, businesses in the community close, property values oftentimes plummet because that hospital was the beating heart of a community, the economic engine. And when buildings like that are suddenly empty and abandoned, the whole community suffers financially, economically. It's devastating. When I was younger, this place was a booming place. You know, houses, businesses, people going to work every day. And it's not just a Kennett thing, it's a United States thing. Um, we've lost sight of what the goal was. We've become too dependent on things that don't matter, social media, uh, you know, the, the division of who is this and what are you, left, right, liberal, white, black, all of that stuff, none of that matters. Um, if you want to have a better life, then you have to put in the work and you have to be a unit, you have to use, come together 
as a collective and make that work. So uh, I believe that once we start realizing that it's gonna take all of us to build this village and it takes a village to sustain, then I think we'll be okay. So I'm not giving up. Um, I'm gonna be here until the end. We sink or if we get back to floating and get back on our course. I was also born at Kennett Hospital, born and raised here as well. Uh, it was a great hospital when it was up and running and flourishing. You guys literally do stand shoulder to shoulder in the job, but in the community, in the belief that you can still do well here. Absolutely. We do. Construction on the hospital began in 1949. It opened in 1951. In 2003, Health Management bought the hospital and closed the doors here for good in June of 2018. A place that once served the community for good and brought hope is now a place that is dark, cold, and empty. This was a famous hospital at one time. This is absolutely, it's heartbreaking, it's crazy all at the same time. Every one of these cities we've gone to, every community that's lost a hospital, they have the same dream of a hospital coming back, to turn these buildings back into places of health care and a focus for the community, but honestly, you look at the condition of some of these buildings, they've been destroyed, the deterioration is it's just extensive, it's too much, and at some point, you just find that that dream just seems to be out of reach. Six thousand hospitals you just told me. How many more gone this year? How many next year? I've already seen a whole list of hospitals mm -hmm. that closed in two thousand twenty two and a yeah. couple already in two thousand twenty three and they're accelerating. Yeah, six hundred at risk. Absolutely at risk. Today. Yeah. And then I think there's another part of this that we don't talk about, which is there's hospitals closing, but there's also hospitals that are shutting down services. You have hospitals that just won't do labor and delivery. They won't do maternity stuff anymore. And they were the only place to go have your baby within an hour. Now, they're still open. It's still a hospital, technically. It's still on the list of all these hospitals. But no OBGYN. But nothing, yeah. So is it really there when, they're, when those people need it? If someone shows up with a heart attack or to have a baby, can they get real care? And the answer in some of these cases is no. Is universal government health care then, as a result of what we're seeing here, inevitable? Uh, it's very possible. Or we're going to get, I believe we'll get to a place where we have de facto universe, you know, government health care. The vast majority will be on a program. We'll have a class system. If you can afford it, you'll have a, a, a private policy. And if you can't, you won't. But those private policies are going to get more and more and more and more astronomically expensive if they're still having to shoulder the load for the whole system, a fifth of our economy. Just imagine the numbers we'll get to. I've got five kids, a good-sized family. I was paying before I went an alternative route and learned everything I've learned through this process, a couple thousand dollars a month for a plan with pretty big out-of-pocket risk. It would be much more than that if we continue down this road. 
some of the former doctors here contend that infant mortality in this town has increased because this hospital isn't here. Do you believe that? Yes, I do. It's the mammograms. It's the colonoscopies. It's the cancer screenings. I don't want to drive an hour. I'm busy. I've got this or that. And so things get missed that wouldn't get missed. And so people end up dying because they don't have a convenient, ready access to go to the hospital to get tested for things. Do you, do you hear about that happening? Well, yeah. But you know, this, this hospital, we had an oncology department. We had a surgical department. We had, they did all, the, all those surgeries. We did the mammograms. In fact, we had, they had the digital that was really good. Um, but, but you're right, there's a lot of people now that just don't get it done because they either don't have the money to travel because there are a lot of people in this area that, that are poverty. What is the nearest hospital now? Uh, well, there is one at Haiti that is 45 minutes. That's where they took my husband. And Poplar Bluff? Poplar Bluff is an hour. If you take away the trauma center, the emergency room, you have a car accident. You have some sort of a life-threatening accident at home with a laceration, a cardiac event. Time's critical. Now what happens? What's your story? You die. That's exactly what happens. I mean, when my husband had his first, there was only two, but the first time that he, that he had where he could not breathe, I called the ambulance. The hospital was here. Um, they got him to the hospital. They vent, they put a vent, sent him to Jonesboro, and he was fine. He was in the hospital for about a week. He came home and everything was great. When they told us they were gonna close the hospital, I went to that meeting and I talked to them and, and asked them, please don't, you know, find some way to keep this hospital open because if that happens again, and this hospital is not here, I don't think he will be here either. My name is Cindy Anderson and I, don't, I used to work at the hospital. I don't work there anymore. This hospital is very essential for this area. There are so many people that can't go anywhere else. And the fact is, t two months ago, if this hospital hadn't been here, my husband wouldn't be here today. At four o'clock in the morning, he woke me up and told me he couldn't breathe. I called 911 within five minutes from him telling me that he couldn't breathe. By the time the first responders got there, he was out of it. He didn't know anything. They got him to the hospital. They put him on a vent. He was sent to Jonesboro. He was in ICU for four days. He's with me now. That will not happen if this hospital goes away or a hospital somewhere. These people care. They really do care. And there are a lot of people that don't have the option to go anywhere else. This is a poor community. There are people that don't have cars. There are people that walk to the different clinics to get help to see the doctor. We have got to have something here and I, I am one that will stand here and tell you that if this hospital is gone, there will be a lot of lives lost. On October 
the 18th of 2019, it happened again. And they came and got him, just like they did the time before, but the hospital wasn't here. They had to take him to Haiti, and he didn't have enough time to get there. Yesterday, there was a big fire here in Kennett. Two people in that house fire died. That happened at four o'clock in the morning. There's nothing open. No way for them to get any help. And it's one after another after another. Happens all the time. We've got what's known in, in the circles as the golden hour. And within that hour is what you really have as a maximum to be able to intervene for life-saving or life-sustaining uh, treatment. And anytime you're going to delay that treatment uh, for any reason, it can be uh, lethal. And I think that when we survey rural residents about the value of their hospitals in their local rural community, uh, the emergency department and access to that care is always rated one of the highest services uh, that the facility offers. Um, you, you mentioned stroke, uh, cardiovascular disease such as heart attack, uh, trauma, uh, of course, uh, going into uh, from, from motor vehicle accidents. Another area that you have to remember in a rural community is uh, farming accidents, farming uh, incidents where, again, you need to have access to uh, services quickly in order to intervene uh, at an appropriate time. Did they put profits over your husband? Yes. Yes, I believe they did. They had just built a new hospital in Popper Bluff, and they hurt a lot of people, which is really, and their, their motto is we care. They don't care. If they had cared, they would have worked with the people of Kennett because they did try. The people tried? Yes, the people tried. The doctors tried. Doctors tried to buy it? Yes. Rejected? Right. And I was also told that um, one of the hospitals said that they would come in and manage it, but that didn't go through either because they didn't want that. They thought that everybody from here would come to Popper Bluff to be cared for, but that didn't happen. You believe your husband, Butch, would have survived if this hospital had been here? I do. I do. I tell everybody that. He didn't make it to the hospital? No. Well, they worked on him when they got there, but he had a pacemaker, and that was the only thing that was still showing up, but he didn't make it, no. He died in the ambulance? Yes. If you don't have that, you go outside that golden hour and the increases in probability of uh, mortality at that point is much higher. People die. Every town we go to where a hospital is closed, the questions are often the same. How many scenes like this of people working will repeat itself when it doesn't need to? How many people like Butch Anderson will end up here and his wife Cindy coming to visit that could have been avoided if the hospitals had stayed open? 
It's a question nobody can really answer, but I can tell you this. More people end up in places like this cemetery in Kennett, Missouri, than need to, as long as they don't have access to health care like they used to. And that's a pattern repeating itself all over this country. We've got health care in America under attack by price of insurance, uh, government requiring treatment for people that cannot pay, yep. uh, reducing their reimbursement rates year after year, raising the amount of paperwork that has to be done. These hospitals have entire departments now just to figure out reimbursements, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And then when they can't survive on that and they get strung out for six, seven, eight, nine months, 12 months to get reimbursed at all for dollars that won't even cover the cost of care, you know, some of them can't wait that long. Then it comes time to negotiate with the commercial payers. And I, I grew up in a rural part of Northern California and I got into this industry in that area. And I got to see exactly how that, how that process worked when one of the blues uh, came in. In most states, they're one company in California, there are two. But one of the blues came in to this hospital that's two and a half, three hours from any real population center of size. Right. And negotiated so ruthlessly with this hospital that they ended up getting them to accept 95% of Medicare as their reimbursement. They were already losing money on Medicare, but it was 95% or your, our people will not have any coverage at your facility, you'll be out of network. And they're one of the biggest insurers in that market. In fact, on the exchange, they were the only insurer left in that market. So they had all the power. And then I watched as all the good providers, the surgeons and so on, left. They can't, you're asking people in a career you know, where they spent all kinds of money yeah, to go out of business, right. essentially. I mean, this has been the big issue in rural health care for a long time. You know, the western states, when you're way out in the middle, uh, hour, 100 miles from a facility, uh, it's, it's difficult to get the treatment you need if it's a severe injury. And people want more and more and more, and they want it to be free, free, free. Yeah. Exactly. It we have work. It doesn't work. The math does not work. There's states that have said, we'll go to this universal model, California, New York, Massachusetts. We can rattle off more. When they get down to doing the math, for California as an example, it would be greater in cost than their entire budget to do universal health care. And when they do the math, they're not doing it right. If you are going to, and they all base their math, they say it would save money because look how much cheaper Medicare is than commercial insurance but they leave out the whole fact that commercial insurance props up our entire system. So if you want to continue to have the same quality or anything close, then you have to do the math quite differently. If we just use RAND as an example, and their study saying 224% is what commercial payers reimburse hospitals. So if we just took the 224% number, keeping it real high level and simple, it wouldn't, wouldn't just be slightly more than California's budget, it would be a lot more. People rely on hospitals for so many reasons. The obvious is to receive great health care. And for the hundreds of doctors and other personnel working there, they receive their living from the hospital as well. These hospitals provide work for contractors like electricians, security guards, in this case physical therapists like Bill Palmer. Bill was contracted with a hospital for 40 years. You've been here how long? In this location since 95. Origi originally we were inside the hospital, but we got through that. But you've been with the hospital then total time, how long? Since 1983. 40 years? Yes. I was a contract company and uh, we contracted with them to provide their services, both inpatient and outpatient. 
How many employees did you have? We had 25. We uh, contracted with the hospital still. They actually, they opened a rehab unit for us and we provide services on the fourth floor of the hospital for rehab, uh, rehab unit. And how many today? Five full-time and a half-time. You've lost 20 employees gone. Right, even one of my partners left. Plus hundreds of people employed at the hospital gone. 360 are gone. You lose 400 jobs in a town of 10,000. It's hard to get them replaced. Now we have lately begun to have some luck bringing some companies in, but who really wants to come on an industrial side to a, to a city like this when we don't have a hospital that they can take their employees to? I mean, that's, that's a big to-do for us right there. How do we get more jobs when we can't provide health care for them? It's gone from being the heart of a community It's become a magnet for, for criminals. At one point, they had tunnels dug through the rooms so that if somebody came in to get them or arrest them, whatever, they could go through the tunnels and end up in a couple of rooms down. I pity the people that lose their facility, their hospital. Even an emergency room with a physician is better than um, being without totally, and there are some attempts through the legislation in Missouri to allow um, freestanding emergency rooms, emergency centers, and if we could pull off something like that, that would be better than what we have right now. But um, until that changes, we're just without. 400 miles east of Kennett, hidden in the Blue Ridge Mountains, is the tiny community of Ducktown, Tennessee. It sits on top of the massive Copper Basin, where Tennessee, North Carolina, and Georgia converge. Copper mining gave the town and the region its identity for more than a century. Copper was king. Starting in the 1840s, the mining would continue until 1987. During that time, old mining techniques would release sulfuric acid into the atmosphere. An acid rain would destroy nearly all life in the area, creating a desert-like environment. The 1950s saw the Copper Basin Medical Center emerge and serve as the local hospital to Ducktown and the rest of Polk County. Soon mining would begin to decline, and when it finally shut down, regreening efforts began in earnest, and 16 million trees, along with acid-tolerant grasses, would be planted throughout the basin. Today, you aren't able to tell if this area was once devoid of life. However, the same areas surrounding the mine would be kept how it was to serve as a reminder of the consequences of past mistakes. Unfortunately, with the mining gone, along with the jobs and the money, the area took a hard hit. And in 2017, the Copper Basin Medical Center closed its doors as well. That left locals with only a couple of choices. Travel 15 to 20 minutes into Georgia to seek care and be hit with out-of-state costs or travel to the closest facility in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, which for many is more than an hour away. Today, like the old copper mines, the hospital sits empty, just a shell of its former self, 
and a reminder of past mismanagement and what has been lost. Though there is a silver lining here, at least in people's hearts, a hope that just like the trees and the life that returned to these hills, that the hospital can come back to life one day too. Polk County, Tennessee, like so many rural communities around this country, is not big. Five or 6,000 people in this part of the county were served by this hospital. And at that critical moment when the golden hour is in play, your ambulance entrance might have been the difference between life and death. You see, for a small area like this, the options become very limited when the hospital closes. The next hospital is 25 or 35 or 45 minutes away. If you've had a heart attack, a stroke, or been in a bad car crash, you need to get to a hospital as fast as possible. And when that hospital is no longer there, it changes everything. What was, this, what was it like growing up here? It was a pretty neat little place to grow up. We didn't have to worry about the stuff that kids do today. Man, you could come and go walk to your buddy's house if it's 10 miles away and not have to worry. I mean, it was just a, as sad as a different time. I'd love to go back, but I know those days are gone. So it had hospital, we had stores, we had, we had everything we needed here in this little community. We didn't have to go out of town to shop or anything. And of course now, you know, with, when the company went down, of course, that was a big thing with the hospital because they had commercial insurance and then, you know, all the employees and their families used the hospital. And we had a good set of doctors that took care of everything. So that was a, it was, it was a hurt when the mines closed. It was the backbone of the county, you know, not just, just this community, but wherever I say the tri-state area, North Carolina, Tennessee and Georgia, and that's why we call this Copper Basin, because it covered three states, and we had workers from all three states, and I think at one time there were over 4,000 employees in in this area, you know, which was crazy to think of that now. We just have a population probably a little over 5,000 in this area now, in, in Tennessee sites, so, and it's coming back, you know, but they're just more retirement and stuff, and that's one thing about losing the hospital. If you're looking to retire, when you go to a place you want good health care, you know the services. So the company closed in the late 80s? 87, the mines closed. The company fully closed somewhere around 2007, maybe. So the, the hospital closes, takes the jobs with us, the grocery store closes. Other things close too, don't they? Right. Yeah. I mean, it ripples through. It does. But the biggest, I guess, thing with the hospital, or even the, the store itself, when they build the bigger, like Walmart over in Blue Ridge and all these, a lot of folks, because it's 12 miles. I mean, there's nothing, when you live in rural, there's nothing to drive 15, 20 miles to a store or go shopping. Right. And that, that was a big hurt. Then the smaller, the dollar store, general store, dollar general, family dollar store, they started putting food, you know, I mean, somewhat food in some of their stores, and that hurt the store. And basically, it was just like everything else. It was sort of on a spiral downhill anyway. Water leak problems, yeah. building gets old. This is what happens when you don't use a place, right? They call it the golden hour for a reason. If this emergency room isn't open, and it's just a storage room for chairs, dusty chairs and cobwebs, people are gonna die. Every one of these hospitals we find that has been closed are in different states of disrepair. 
The hospital in Maslin, Ohio, was in pretty good shape. The one in Kennett, Missouri, pretty well gone. The one here in Ducktown, Tennessee, still in pretty good shape. The building looks to be a lot of disorganization, debris and trash and so forth, plus the break-ins, the crime. But there's still a chance a building like this one or other ones like it around the country could reopen. Hospitals are closing. Universal health care is not going to work. Uh, the health crisis in America continues. Right now, America has the best health care in the world, if you can get it. I agree. We have the best health care in the world, and we're really bad at paying for it. Can we do a better job? I am confident we can. That's what I get up every day to talk to people about. If you look at uh, elective procedures where insurance is not involved, that's a free market. And the free market is the solution to health care. If you look at LASIK surgery, quality has gone up, cost has gone down year over year no insurance. If you look at cosmetic procedures, if you look at uh, you know, people that decide they want to get a vasectomy or, and then get it reversed or whatever, all these various things that you can do like that, quality goes up, cost goes down because the providers are driven to find ways to be more efficient, use that efficiency to create uh, more, be more competitive in the marketplace. That to me is a very, really big clue of how we can solve this. That's part of it. To me, it's depressing to walk through these oh, yeah. halls. I mean, just to look around. I mean, you've got equipment like the machine behind you, the Siemens machine, uh, CT scan. All of this stuff is still sitting here, just wasting away. It's got to be heartbreaking to you. I'll go back this far. Politics killed the hospital, okay? And I don't mean Republican, Democrat. I just mean board members split getting information, you know, back and forth, and nobody really knew what was going on. The biggest hit we took there right before it closed was, and all of a sudden, I mean, it knocked me on my hind end. They wouldn't pay them payroll tax. Set us down, they come up the IRS and met with us and took the board in. You've got the company that went out of business. You've got uh, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, the reimbursement plans from the United States government get more complicated. They get smaller every year and more complicated. That's one of the things we've heard at hospitals. Now you're telling me the Internal Revenue Service came in and played a role. So all of these different pressures on these rural hospitals, you don't stand a chance. Last count, best we could, a little over six million in debt whenever we closed. Now we owed money to Medicare because the sweet thing about Medicare, when you turn in, they'll send you money and they'll overpay you sometimes. And they knock, oh no, so, and that's what happened. We, we got and we thought, man, we're done and we're paying stuff. Well, then we're, so then they turn around and hit us at 12% interest, and it just kept rolling. How can we change the dynamics of rural hospitals and their communities so that they're no longer dependent upon these uh, failed, very complicated bureaucratic payment systems? And so this is the challenge for us. Uh, I often say it's like changing a tire at 60 miles an hour. Uh, we want to make sure that we first do no harm to the existing facilities that we're serving, but then we also want to change the payment structures so that they can be appropriate for, for rural hospitals. State would ask, what can we do to help us? Well, the biggest thing, because TenCare, you know, is Medicare whatever, or Medicaid for the state, raise your rates. I mean, I think the ER, we were getting $15 off an ER visit if you had TenCare. I'm sorry, they don't even pay a nurse's half or quarter of your salary in the ER. So it, just the little things like that, and then the states and the federal, oh, what can we do to help? They know what they can do to help, right? It's, they just, you know, it, it's just sad.
Now, if me and you don't want to work and want to be a bum, oh, they'll help us all day. They'll send us checks and everything right now, apparently. Look what they could have done with this COVID money for a small rural hospital. You can't have Medicare dropping their reimbursements four points in the middle of last year and then another two points at the end of the year and, and then say, hey, it's a big success. We've got the most enrollment in these programs we've ever had, da 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 da, da. That's not an encouraging thing. It's a scary, scary thing. Kind of a history buff, so I look at lockers like this. And I think I wonder what Diane could tell me, or Andrea, or April, or whatever. Well, apparently they took care of their teeth pretty well. They like their teeth. You know, I, I just you sit here and think, well, what stories could these hallways tell? Who was here? Good stories, bad stories, children born, people passing, all of it. I think that's why these hospitals touch me so much is because there's so much history here of real lives and real stories. And so when these hospitals close and go silent, I, I find it kind of heartbreaking. I walk out of the Copper Basin Medical Center and travel just a few minutes to the main strip of Ducktown. We visit Steve Orton's barber shop to talk with Steve and his son, Jared, about the town and how it's changed. He started, he was down here, there was a YMCA on the corner, 1971 is when he got started cutting hair and then he finished this building, 1983, and been here ever since. So, so I'm the second generation of the, the Ortons to cut hair in Ducktown. Everybody in Ducktown knows him. Let me ask you, the hospital here, what, what, what was the impact of that closing? It, it was definitely a, definitely a hard blow because, you know, a lot of people that were elderly around here, you know, that was where they went. And yeah, they couldn't do a lot there, but they would get you to Chattanooga where you could get the help you needed as fast as possible, you know, being a critical care hospital. And also it was the largest employer in the county, you know, in the whole entire county. So that, that was another bad blow, losing all those jobs to a place where there wasn't a lot of jobs, you know. The hospital is usually top three, in this case, maybe number one, like you said. Yeah. So not only do you lose your health care, you lose those jobs, and so then other things close, like the grocery store or whatever, right? I mean, it, it ripples out. Yeah, quickly, yeah. It quickly was. Yeah, we definitely felt it for a few years, the ripple effect, you know, losing the store, losing everything. Things really dried up for a while, but it definitely was hard on a lot of people, that's for sure. Uh, even, even me personally, my wife, she worked there when it closed down. She also lost a job, had to go somewhere else, you know? Heart attacks, strokes, injuries, uh, car crash, whatever. You need an emergency room. I mean, it changes the dynamic, doesn't it? Oh yeah, definitely need an emergency room. And that was, that was definitely at that hospital what got the most business, of course. You know, the emergency room was always in. You know, being a critical care hospital, you know, they couldn't turn anyone away. So everybody went in there, whether it was something that was small that just needed a stitch or someone who was having a heart attack that needed to be airlifted out immediately, you know. And now, you know, the, we do have a local ambulance service. They got a lot further to go. And you know, with the way things are changing with Medicare and how they don't want to, you to be out of state or out of network, like you mentioned, 
it makes it a lot tougher and eventually people are not going to get the care that they need maybe to survive you know you hopeful to see a hospital come back i, I am hopeful yeah i'm very hopeful and i think it'll happen i think in the next few years i think there's just getting too many people and too big of a need that it will be profitable for somebody to bring a hospital back here and like you said, the building is not past the point of repair. I know all the technology in it will have to be all bought brand new and put back in, but you know, the bones of the building are still there. Still got the layout of a, a functioning hospital, you know. When hospitals close, it impacts the entire community, not just through healthcare, but you lose 100 jobs or 200 or 500. It ripples throughout the entire community. It's devastating. Stores close. What happens? Poverty goes up. Crime goes up. Your death rate goes up. And what goes down? Your life expectancy, the community. Hope goes away. Hospitals are cornerstones of communities, and when they go away, the impact it hits everyone. We could save rural hospitals. We have to fix the programs. And, you know, people say, all, ask me all the time, when will we solve this? Well, when lobbying is no longer effective. The fact that we have 14 or 15 lobbyists for every member of Congress around health care is an issue. That's a serious obstacle that we have to overcome. But we've got to fund the programs correctly. And then we have to look at this whole system and say, why should a hospital have 150 prices for every procedure? That's nonsense. We need transparency. We've passed rules around it. We don't enforce them back to lobbying. We have to, it's not going to get solved. We're solving it one employer at a time. That's not a solution to the whole system. The solution to the whole system is we have to require transparency at all levels and create guardrails where a free market can actually work. We can do it. We're doing it in so many other areas of our economy. We have the model, the other four-fifths of the economy. We need to do it here regardless of all the, the dollars that are behind us not doing it, we have to do it. Politics. Yeah, politics. NRHA is engaging in a technical assistance program through the United States Department of Agriculture where we're providing technical assistance to rural hospitals in the form of consulting and engagement uh, to be able to transform the facility to the new value-based care um, uh, environment that we find that we're in right now. And that oftentimes that transformational work can be very stimulating and helpful to facilities. When do you think about a hospital or an ambulance if you don't work there? Seriously. When do you think about where the hospital is or where the ambulance is if you dial 911? And the answer is you don't think about it until you need it. And for millions of Americans, that's why this is a hidden crisis. They don't think about where the hospital is. They just assume when they call 911, the ambulance is gonna show up and it's gonna be there in a timely fashion. But there's a day coming for millions of Americans when they realize, my God, the hospital's gone. The ambulance isn't coming. We've got a real problem. That day is coming. Firemen police officers and EMTs. As Americans, we're thankful for everything they do to keep us safe from criminals and to help us during the times of disaster. When there's an emergency, 
All three of these first responders will be on the scene to help you. But it's the EMT that takes you to the hospital and tries to keep you alive on that ride. Now imagine a city with no EMT service or just one for miles and miles around. You see, it's not only hospitals that are struggling to keep their doors open, but ambulance services as well. If you have no ambulance service in your area and the nearest hospital is 45 minutes away, how do you get there if you're having a heart attack or you've been in a car crash? I'm in Lansing, Michigan, meeting with Rodney Dean Palmer from Mercy Ambulance Service. Rodney and his brother Dennis have owned the ambulance service for more than 20 years. It's been the family business for two generations because they bought the business from their dad in 1995. Increased response times. That's happening. That's because there's not enough ambulances on the road right now. People are going to die because of slow response times. And I can't control all of that. I can only control what we have and what we have to work with. And waiting 45, 50 minutes, you know, for an ambulance, even if he lives in rural America, is not a good idea. So let's talk about yeah. that 5%. Yeah. You've had a car wreck. You've yes. had an injury at home. Yeah. You've got a bad laceration or a heart attack, a heart issue. Yeah. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It can be the whole ball game. In less than four minutes. It's scary. And of course, you know, the statistics will support the fact that, you know, lives are lost when people have to travel farther to get to health care. I think we have to, as a culture, create that it's cool to take care of sick people. It's rewarding. And that's what needs to happen. And it needs to happen at the home and the college. We have to get it back to more basics. My dad had a group of paramedics here that took eight weeks to become a paramedic. We've got to get more people involved in this. That means less paramedics and more EMTs. There's a big difference in hours of training. That has to happen because we still got to get you to the hospital. Oh, ambulance services, emergency medical services, uh, however you want to style it. Uh, we have such a hodgepodge around the country of how the services are delivered. Uh, you have some places where the counties run it, some places the hospitals run it, and in many places around the country there are volunteers. These are volunteer services, people who give of their own time and, and, and effort uh, to make runs of patients, often very large distances, in order to get uh, care for their neighbors and families. And um, we really need to place some attention on this. I think it's sad that we are put into the situation that we're in right now, um, having to deal with that. So where are we today? And where are we gonna be five years from now? Reimbursements. There's gotta be more money. It's gotta be flooded into this system. If we charge $1,000 for an ambulance run, and I'm only collecting $495, but I need $600 to operate, I'm sorry, how much longer our place is going to be able to survive?
it's a mess. So where's the hope five years from now? We have staff meetings, and I'm talking to really smart people, and it seems kind of hopeless. Uh, nobody's making enough money to survive. And so the money's got to come from somewhere. The people have got to come from somewhere. End of the day, you tally up your calls. You got paid for this money, didn't get paid for this money. You can't run a business that way. That's why the ambulance service south of here is gone. The one farther south here is hanging by a thread. All over this country, I read about 10 that went out in New York State here just last year. Yeah. I mean, you can't survive. And I just saw one that went out in northern Michigan because they could no longer guarantee 365, 24 hours a day, which is also state law. When somebody dials 911, you're going to get an ambulance. That's the law. That's law. There's no... There's here and across the country. That's correct. It doesn't matter where. you got to respond. Uh, the staying up all night long, the, uh, the sleepless nights. There's all these pertinent negatives in our industry that make it hard and make it hard to sustain staying in this. There's been a recent policy development uh, that has created some hope for rural hospitals in terms of their operation, and that's the Rural Emergency Hospital. And it is a kind of a midway point between a hospital, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week uh, facility, and a clinic. So it's placed in between. It's basically an outpatient emergency department. And we're hopeful that uh, that can be uh, something that would be useful for some communities with really low patient census uh, to be able to convert to. I think the jury is out in my mind in terms of whether this will be a successful program for going forward. But that's an example of the innovation that's come forward um, that we're hopeful may have a place go, uh, in, the, in the offering of services to rural places. Another problem facing American healthcare is the lack of people. You see, there's a shortage of doctors and nurses, EMTs and paramedics. And as a result, it means that when hospitals find people and ambulance services find people, they have to pay more, creating more financial stress and therefore more bad outcomes. And honestly, once a hospital closes, they usually never come back. Despite the best efforts and all the hopes of, well, maybe we can do this and maybe we can do that, usually it just never happens. But in Maslin, Ohio, they may have found their golden ticket. His name is Mike Farina. And Mike says he's willing to bet a fortune, his fortune, on opening the hospital back up in his hometown. You know, my feeling is, is a town like Maslin without a hospital can't survive. I would do just about anything to get our hospital back. It was doom and gloom, and now there's, there's a big hope. You know, there's a lot of people that rely on something like this that, you know, don't have the chance to speak up, and I do. I hope with all my heart that the hospital is able to be reopened in some form in the future. So there is hope for you. Absolutely there's hope. I had opportunities to go a lot of places, but I came back to my hometown because we're making it a better place. We need health care. I'm hoping to get it to be a public hospital like it was in the beginning. I look optimistically at the idea that the hospital will reopen. I'm really, really pleased that someone has taken on that task and is um, enthusiastically pursuing it. Without a hospital, now we're going to get one back. If somebody is sick, has a heart attack, has, has something, we, we're right down the street now like we should be. You know, I think that we're really being blessed that somebody has thought enough of Maslin and has 
really stepped up and done something and, and it's a good start and we're all waiting for the finish. I generally do what I say I'm going to do and uh, pretty important to me. Thank you for watching this documentary on the hospital crisis in America and taking the time to learn about what we're facing as a nation when it comes to this critical component of health care. Watching this film and learning about the problems we face is just the beginning because finding a solution is a must. Otherwise, millions of us could get left behind when it comes to health care at all levels. We've set up a special page so you can share this film with your friends, family, colleagues, or anyone else you think should see this today and spread the word on this critical message about America's hospital crisis. You can scan the QR code on your screen right now or go to the website, flatlinefilm.com backslash share. That's flatlinefilm.com backslash share. You can also pay it forward and let anyone see this film for free because this is something every American needs to see and hear before it's too late. Again, thank you for watching. I had no idea how big the problems were facing American hospitals when I started this journey. The problems are enormous. Hundreds of hospitals have already closed. Hundreds more are on the brink. Politicians, giant corporations, insurance companies, they've all played a role in getting us to this point and they can all play a role in solving this problem, but they have to admit to you, to me, to everyone that there is a problem. Otherwise, millions more Americans could soon wake up and realize they don't have a local hospital anymore and no ambulance service to take them even if there was. We can solve this problem, but we have to work together. It really is that simple. I'm Steve Gruber. Thank you for watching.